begin by telling a story or a retelling of the story that the Apostle Paul recounts in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. In the beginning, God said that he would bless all the nations, all nations through a man named Abraham. And he said his offspring would be countless It would be countless as the stars in the sky. Now, normally, normally in the ancient world and even up to our day, the firstborn son received the blessing of the father or else the inheritance of his father. But God said, God said, through Isaac, through your secondborn son, shall your offspring be named. God chose Abraham and then he chose to bring the promise through his son Isaac, he chose Isaac. Now, some people argued that Isaac was chosen not because God chose Isaac, not because of God's choice, but because Abraham's firstborn son, whose name was Ishmael, was conceived outside of wedlock or outside of the covenant, outside of the promise. It was against the normal custom to give your blessing to your second son, but But some people argued it was entirely reasonable that the second son, Isaac, was chosen instead of Ishmael. This was how they told the story. Abraham's second-born son, Isaac, grew up and he was married. But after two decades of marriage, Isaac and Rebekah had no children in order to pass the blessing to. No child to fulfill God's promise to bless all nations through Abraham. And after 20 long years of frustration, and they didn't, they didn't seek fulfillment of the, pros, the, the promise through other means. They were faithful in long suffering. God said to Isaac and said to Rebekah, I'm not only going to give you a son, I'm going to give you twins. I'm going to give you twin sons. And I want you to give your blessing to the second-born son, to the second-born son. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, they had waited for two decades, and God blessed them with not one but two sons. And the second-born son, Jacob, he was chosen by God to receive the blessing, to fulfill the promise. But this time, this time, there was no reasonable explanation for this. There was no reasonable explanation, at least in the story, why the second son was chosen and not the first. The twin boys, Paul says, had done nothing good. He's very explicit about this. They did nothing good to receive the blessing, to merit the blessing. Neither had they done anything bad. So you couldn't just say that one did bad things, so I gave it to the other one. But God chose Jacob to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing for all the nations. And so, and so the nation of Jacob and his name would be changed later to Israel would fulfill the promise to bless all nations, even for the nation of Esau, his brother, not because Jacob was good or bad, Because if you read the story, he was mostly bad, but it was God's choice that mattered, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul told this Genesis story, and this is a summary of the Genesis story to this point, to the Jewish people in Rome, and they said, they replied 
to this as if to say, that's our story, Paul. That's our blessing. That's our story. We are the sons of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. We are the sons of Israel. That's our story. We've been telling this story for generations. And now, Paul, you've been saying this in Rome and all over the world. You have been giving this story or else this blessing to the Gentiles. To people like Pharaoh who did, did not pursue righteousness. God gave us. He gave us the promise. And so Paul continues responding to this accusation. Remember what God said to Moses a little later in the story after the Exodus. I, the Lord, will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You see, my promise, it doesn't depend on human will, whether your goodness or your badness or else your strength or any merit in you. Because I, the Lord God, will fulfill my promise to all nations because of my mercy alone, because I am merciful. And this was always the plan. This was the plan from the very beginning. Hosea later said it like this. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, my beloved. I will call them my sons and my daughters, sons of the living God. Isaiah preached and he cried out. Jacob's sons are more than the sands of the sea, echoing this promise to Abraham. But only a remnant of Jacob's sons would hear this. Only a remnant of them would repent, Isaiah preached. Only a remnant would be saved. The patriarchs, the blessing, the adoption, the promises, they were all squandered by most of Israel, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, Isaiah concluded, we would have been completely destroyed, like Sodom and like Gomorrah. This is our story, Paul says. This is our story. It's the whole story, not just the part that we like to tell. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and then... Even with all of that, we stumbled and we fell. In our unbelief, in our rebellion, in our shame, God sent his Messiah, the long-awaited king in the line of David. He sent Messiah to us, and Moses looked forward to this day when he said of the Messiah who would come, the word is near you. He's near you. Everyone Anyone from any nation who believes in Messiah will no longer be ashamed. Call on him. Call to the Lord and he will save you. This is what God said from the beginning. This is the story according to the Apostle Paul. And he says that I did not believe it either. I'm with you, Israelites. I didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah at first. At the end of the story, I stumbled and fell too. But then, God's gospel, according to Isaiah, knocked me flat on my back. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God's kindness led the Apostle Paul to repentance. And so, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, God's intention was clear, and the Apostle Paul is abundantly Clear. All nations were to receive the blessing, even foolish nations, 
Edomites and Israelites, Israel, the world, all of them. I always have and I always will keep my promise. I will choose by grace and not by works. This is my plan. So this is Paul's letter. This is his summary of the story of God in Romans 9 through 11. He quotes explicitly Genesis and Exodus and Job and Deuteronomy and Moses in many places. Samuel, Elijah, Hosea, Isaiah, and many more, many, many more. God rich in mercy because of his sovereign election, because of his purpose, not ours, which is inscrutable. We don't, we don't know it. It's, it's so far above us. It's unknown to us. We don't grasp it. He kept for himself a remnant by his grace, and he does the same today. He chooses people from many nations to give his grace. This is the story. So what? So what? I have two, two points of application, one that's more general, and then the, another that's more specific to our reading from Romans chapter 11 this morning. The first, and they're both broken up into a negative and a positive, okay? So two points, negative and positive, all right? So here's the first negative positive point. Don't speculate, praise. Don't speculate, praise. In C.S. Lewis's essay, Dogma and the Universe, it's a rather dense essay. I'm not necessarily recommending that you go read it right here, but I'm going to summarize a little key part to this essay, Dogma and the Universe. So in this essay, Lewis addresses many things, but he addresses in a central part the tendency for human beings, for all humanity, to put things beneath us, underneath us. And what does he mean by that? Whether we're talking about the farthest reaches of the solar system or animal life, C.S. Lewis says that we act as if everything is intelligible, that we can understand it all, that it's underneath us, that we can understand it, and if we only study it long enough, or else we have the right resources and tools, we can comprehend it. It's below us. And Christians, Lewis says, have a similar problem when we come to reading Holy Scripture. So this is a general point as we turn to our text. Scripture, says Lewis in this essay, it's like a farmer who gives one dose of medicine to a sick hen. Okay, so in this illustration, we're all on a farm. You're like a hen who's sick. And the farmer, God, gives you, the one sick hen, a dose of medicine. Okay, but then the hen, the hen does not know he does not now know about the general character of farming in England. So God gave him medicine because he was sick, but that does not make the hen knowledgeable about the character of farming in all of England, okay? So he uses this illustration to say, Scripture was not written to gratify our liberal curiosity, like a dose of medicine that makes us somehow stop being hens and understand the nature of farming in the whole of England. That's not the point of the medicine. Scripture was given, it was written to give us relief in our urgent necessity, not to gratify our liberal curiosity, but to give us relief in our need, in our urgent need. 
So here's the point. Scripture is the story of God visiting and redeeming his people. It's medicine to a sick person. It's not the key to understand all mysteries. Romans chapter 11. Paul quotes Job. He says it like this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And so Paul, and with Lewis, and I think this is wisdom and it's true, he invites us not to speculate, not to put the text underneath us as a a scientist would to understand what's going on, to understand all mysteries. That's not the primary point. Now, we should study Paul's story, which is an argument. It's a story argument in order to better understand what he's saying. But all too often, what we mean by that is this study that leads to a vain speculation, this kind of speculative spirit that leads, and we've seen this, you guys have seen this, I'm sure, it leads to needless divisions. So, what I'm saying at the very least, is if you're a Calvinist, go ahead, be a Calvinist. If you're an Arminian, go ahead, be an Arminian. I'm not going to resolve that for you this morning. I have my thoughts, but don't don't be speculative. That is not the center or the heart of the meaning of this text I would articulate this morning. And Article 17 of our 39 Articles of Religion, thinking about this doctrine of election or else predestination, says if you are overly curious or else you are carnal, you're not coming to the scriptures or this doctrine in the proper way. So don't be consumed by curiosity that leads to vain speculation. Romans chapter 15, at the, near the end of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he comes back to themes that he hits mainly in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He says this, For I tell you, and he's speaking to all the people in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So he, he confirmed, he gave us Christ Jesus to confirm all the promises given to his people, and Paul says in verse 8, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. For both the Jews and the Gentiles, Christ came. Christ came. And then he quotes four different passages of Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 50. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with who? With his people. This is the hope. This was always the hope. Psalm 117 and verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is the hope. This is the promise. Isaiah chapter 11, Paul quotes in Romans 15. The root of Jesse will come. The hope from my people. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So it's for both people. It's for both people. Okay? So don't speculate. It's intended to lead to praise, to rejoicing, to praise, to hope. And this is the hope of the prophets. It's the hope of Moses. It's the hope of the king in his song. 
and it's the hope of Isaiah and the Apostle Paul in their sermons. So don't speculate, praise, and finally, don't worry. Don't worry, marvel. Don't worry, marvel. Look with me at Romans chapter 9, a couple chapters earlier, in verse 19. Don't worry, hear this first, don't worry, don't worry. Romans chapter 9 and verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now pause for a second. Pause for a second. I, I know many of us are curious. We hear this and we go, what in the world? That sounds terrifying. Are you there? That's okay. That's okay. Remember again, Article 17, which I mentioned earlier of our 39 articles, says that curious people who have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination. So if you're fixated upon verses like this all the time, this is a most dangerous downfall, okay? So hear that. We don't have to dwell here all the time. This is a mystery too high for us to understand. Now, on the other hand, curiosity often leads to desperation. On the one hand, it leads to desperation or else to worry and despair. But on the other hand, if we fixate upon this doctrine, it doesn't lead to curiosity, it leads to a carnal life. So you could be in despair if you fixate, or you could say it doesn't really matter what I do because God's going to do whatever he wants anyway, so I'm just going to go do what I want. So don't fixate. Both ways, both ways are perilous. So how, and here's the question, how do we transition away from worry or else the, the problem that arises because of fixation upon this doctrine, how do we go from worry to comfort? How do we go from worry to comfort? We all tend to fall into the twin pits of determinism. What are those? There's despair. It matters not. God doesn't choose me. I'm despairing. I'm worrying. That's one side. Or else eat and drink and tomorrow we die. On the other, how do we get out of those pits? How do we get out of those places of pits? Or in other words, how is Isaiah's imagery of God molding honorable and dishonorable clay pots, which Paul uses here in Romans 9, how is it supposed to be, as Article 17 says, how is this doctrine supposed to be full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to the Christian? How do you go from worry to comfort? That's what I'm interested in this morning. Not answering all mysteries, but making the turn away from worry or else consumption with panic about this doctrine into a place of comfort. And I have three points to sort of illustrate this transition from worry into comfort or worry into praise. The first one 
is this. A potter, a potter doesn't make pots simply to break them. Okay? And this interpretation goes all the way back to the early church fathers, all the way through the reformers, all the way up to us today. It doesn't matter if you're reading Augustine or you're reading Jacobus Arminius, okay? Hear this. A potter doesn't make pots simply to break them, even chamber pots. And if you don't know what a chamber pot is, go ask Greg. He'll tell you about that, okay? So the first one is an image, and I just want you to have this image in your mind, a potter making pots, some for common use, and some for honorable use, he doesn't, for whatever we say about this, he doesn't do that simply in order to break one of them and use the other for honorable use, okay? Hear this from Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, and verse 20 of chapter 2. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable the kinds of things you do in public and the kinds of things you don't do in public, all right? There's the idea here. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, Paul says. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So you can go, according to the Apostle Paul, from dishonorable to honorable. You can be a dishonorable pot, and you can become honorable. How do you do that? He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Don't, don't be consumed with bickering about theology, with ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And so one way is to recognize that a potter doesn't make pots simply to break them. So however you interpret Romans chapter 9, it's not determined. It's not fixed and fully, finally for you. Secondly, all people without distinction, everyone who believes will be saved. And so Romans chapter 9, there is an image of a potter and clay pots. Romans chapter, two, chapter 10 moves into exhortation, moves into exhortation. So an image and exhortation, hear this from Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? To everyone, to everyone who believes. Verse 11 of chapter 10, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's an Old Testament scripture. Everyone, all people without distinction. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Paul says. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and he quotes the Old Testament again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you are everyone and you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's anyone. That's open to anyone. Hear what Martin Luther says, that great Calvinist, before they were called Calvinists. Do you doubt if you are chosen? Then say your prayers, and you may conclude that you are. Boom. All right? Just say them. All right? Just say your prayers, and you may conclude that you are. C.S. Lewis, that great Calvinist. Just kidding. Um, that's one way he, in which he was wrong, but I don't know. I don't know. 
I really, honestly, I don't know. I'm saying that with a whole heart this morning. This is what Lewis says. It is plain from Scripture that in whatever sense this Pauline doctrine of predestination, in whatever sense that it is true, it is not true in any sense which excludes its apparent opposite. In other words, God choosing one, bestowing his love upon the one, does not necessarily exclude the opposite or else the apparent opposite. God is welcoming all people to come in to repentance. Or to fast forward a little bit more to one of my favorite scholars of this decade, of this century, Scott Hahn says it like this, the option for faith always remains a possibility in this life, as does the option for unbelief. Always. Faith and unbelief. This is an option before you and before me this morning. Or to conclude with Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their, the Jewish people, the Israelites' disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. So they both can receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on who? All. On all. So, secondly, this is the exhortation at the center of this story. All people. From any place, any time, without distinction, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes will be saved. And finally, and finally, a third, a third and final point. How do we move from this place of worry to being consumed with worry and move into a place of praise or else a pra- place of comfort? Now, before I say it, nobody, nobody can deny that God's people, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, okay? Who are God's people? Who, who is in view in multiple different places here in Romans chapter 11? Is it Israel? Is it all Israel? Is it the true Israel? Is it the church? Is it you? Is it me? Okay? That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's a difficult question, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But nobody can deny that all people, or even God's people, are fickle. They're undeserving of whatever grace God gives to us. We are sinners who sin greatly and fall. And so all of us, no matter where we're, if we're an insider or we're an outsider, we all have this question, is it too late for me? Am I, as I, I, as I love to hear in the Premier League uh, soccer games, is it done and dusted? All right? if it, is it over? Is it completely over? Is the game over already? How can we turn the corner from worry to comfort? Here's the final image. Marvel at God's patience and kindness and beauty, and it's with an image. And I'm going to get to this image in a moment. Did you get my text? Okay, beautiful. It'll be just in a second. I actually have an image illustration here this morning. First, maybe the last time in my preaching ministry. We'll see, okay? Marvel at God's patience and kindness and beauty. Hear this from... Verse 11, right before what Liam read for us this morning. Did they, did the Israelites, the nation of Israel, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Chrysostom, he answers this question, summarizing Paul's response. But let us see if the fall is of such a kind as to be incurable. Let's see. No, it is not. That's his answer. No, it is not by no means, the Apostle Paul says. To put it in his words, with a word, Paul answers the question of vain curiosity, of this endless speculation, who's in, who's out, who is beyond the reach of God's mercy, of worry that leads to hopelessness. The answer is no, nobody. Nobody is incurable. The nation of Israel's fall is not incurable, and we'll talk about that more next week. But for this week, your fall is not incurable. Your fall is not incurable. No, it is not with a word, but more than an emphatic word, more than a word to this answer, Paul answers the question with an emphatic image. And that's where our text sits mostly. It's a patient image. It's a slow image. It's a seasonal image. It's an image that makes sense of severity, of harshness in our life. Even with a sovereign God, we're cutting off or else breaking off. Whether it's intentional or it seems to be unintentional, all of it is God's kindness to us. It's an image that helps us understand it. It's a masterstroke of his careful attention. Yes, even, Paul says, severe mercy leads us out of our pride or conceit and into fear and into rejoicing. So out of worry and into praise, into marveling. And so here's the image. Rather than talk incessantly about the image, I want to show you an image. So Sam Van Aken, I saw this a few years ago, and I can't get it out of my head, and I want it to be stuck in your head, okay? So Sam Van Aken, he's an artist, and he's a professor of Syracuse University, and as I was doing research for this, so I could talk about this guy, I thought he was a scientist. Dude's not a scientist, okay? He's an artist. He's in the School of Fine Arts at Syracuse, which is even cooler. It actually confirms a lot of what I was trying to say this morning. Don't analyze everything. Appreciate it. Don't analyze, appreciate. This is a good turn, okay? So Sam Van Aken, he began work on a project on campus at Syracuse over a decade ago, and he called it the Tree of 40 Fruit, okay? And we'll post to Facebook, and we'll send it out in the parish notes. There's a video that goes along with some of these images. Are the images there? Okay. That, you can't see that one very well. Some of the other ones you'll be able to see a little bit more clearly. But this is a tree that is made up of 40 different kinds of stone fruit, okay? Stone fruit are peaches and plums and apricots and nectarines and cherries and almonds. They have a, they have a common genus or a common family, okay? And so uh, th he began, Sam began with a fascination with the process of grafting, when you're a young child, and I think maybe the third image here, you can see all these different kinds of fruit that are growing on the exact same tree. And it's because of this process, go to the next slide. Uh, actually, go back one. No, sorry. So one more. I don't even know what I'm saying. Okay, see, you can see the different colors, okay? So he, he, actually, he actually crafted the trees so that when he grafted different uh, branches onto the tree that it had color in every season 
on all sides, a beautiful tapestry. They all bloomed at different times and in different colors. Um, show show the, maybe the, the hand, the close one with the hand. Okay, so this is the process of grafting where you cut, you cut a branch and you put those two branches together and you wrap it up with a little bit of clear tape and they grow together and it becomes a part of the tree. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. And this is the image. This is the image that the Apostle Paul uses. Okay? It's a very impractical image for harvesting. If you want to harvest stone fruit, don't do this. If you want to run a farm that produces cherries or else nectarines or plums or whatever, don't put them all on the same tree because you're going to have to come back every different week and harvest a little different part of the tree all the time. It, it, it makes no, it, it's, there's no utility in this. There's only beauty. There's blossoms. There's many colors. And this is the image. This is the image that I want you to have in your head when you hear this. Hear this again, what Liam read for us. Then you, this is verse 9 of chapter 11. Then you, Gentile, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, Paul says. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. His severe mercy, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And hear this, verse 23. And even then, even then, they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's beautiful. It's marvelous. Even those that are cut off are intended to, by nature, be grafted back in to the tree. All trees, wild trees or cultivated trees, they all find their sustenance from the same earth. And, and to use this image, they all find their sustenance from the root, from the root of Jesse, from the root of Abraham's offspring. They come from the same ground, and they're nourished by the same sun. So hear this, Christian. The sovereign election of God does not mean you are hopeless. If you're hearing this today, there is hope. If you are experiencing a severe mercy of God today, if you are feeling cut off from the Lord, if you're experiencing this even now, and your heart, your heart is hard towards God, even in that place, this does not mean that salvation has passed you by. Return to the Lord. Marvel and don't worry. God's intention in the beginning and all the way up to us today in both cutting off and grafting in is to show mercy. That is his intention. 
So don't be afraid. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our